Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. My wife and I had the privilege, as I mentioned the other night, of going to the Holy Land many years ago. One day as we boarded the bus in Jerusalem, the guide came on the microphone and he began to kind of go down the itinerary of the day and some places that we would see so that we could kind of be prepared. He said, this afternoon, we're going to visit a little town called Samaria. He said, there's a, a, just a small group of people here. There are about 360 or so people that live in this particular village. And he said, they are all true Samaritans. That is, they go all the way back to the Bible. They have married Samaritans. And so they are true-blooded Samaritans. He said, we're really not going there to see them. He said, there's a little temple on the edge of that town that contains some of the ancient manuscripts of the Bible that I want to show to you. But he said, I must warn you, he said, when we get to that town, because they're just a small number of people and they have intermarried down through the years, there are some physical challenges that these people have. Well, that's about all he said. And we went through our itinerary that day, and that afternoon we came to this small little village. I remembered what the guide had said, and so as I sat there in the bus, I was looking out the sides of the windows, and, and the, the dwelling places of these people were very poorly constructed, just kind of some, some tin and some, some wood kind of thrown together to provide some shelter from the heat and the, and the rain. And there were no doors on the dwelling places, and so the, the children, the people, the, the sheep, the goats were going in and out of these, these uh, little make-two houses. The bus stopped, and we uh, got off to go to this little temple. And as we did, I did not see a single child in that village that could walk. Some of them were actually missing limbs. Others were badly deformed. And as we got off that bus to, to walk as American tourists, those children rolled across the ground to try to get close enough to us to be able to beg something of us. In this story, we have a lame man who ended up at the king's table. Only God, through his grace, can take a lame man and put him at the king's table. Only God can take a stutterer and a stammerer like Moses and by his grace make him the leader of his people. Only the grace of God can take a Saul of Tarsus and convert his soul and make him a great preacher. Only the grace of God can take a person like Peter who one day denied the Lord and yet through God's grace was able to serve him faithfully the way to his death. And it's only the grace of God that can save our soul today and make our life something that God can use for his glory. I want you to see this morning four steps in this man's life, Mephibosheth, that took him from being a lame man all the way to the king's table. I want you to notice, first of all, a crippling fall. Now, in our text in 2 Samuel 9, we read that this man, Mephibosheth, was lame on both of his feet. Now, how did this happen? How did he get this way? 
Was he born in this condition? Did something happen in the pregnancy of his mother that caused this boy to be born with this deformity? How did he become lame? Was there an injury somewhere along the line that caused him to be lame? Well, let's go back a few chapters to 2 Samuel chapter 4, and we get a little background here on this condition. In 2 Samuel 4 and verse 4, the Bible says, And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame of his feet. He was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it came to pass, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So Saul, of course, is king of Israel. And Saul and his son Jonathan are out fighting a battle in Jezreel. However, Saul has already lost the blessing of God. Saul has disobeyed God, and uh, so God's hand of blessing has come off of Saul, and so this battle in Jezreel is not going well. They're getting beat. And so Saul sends word back to the families of of himself and Jonathan, get out, leave, we're going to be overrun. And so a nurse picks up this grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, Five years old, she picks him up and begins to run, begins to flee, and as she does, there's a fall. And as a result of that fall, Mephibosheth is lame on both of his feet. You and I have also suffered from a crippling fall. The Bible tells us that when God created Adam and Eve, he placed them in a beautiful garden called the Garden of Eden. And God had told Adam and Eve, of all the trees in the garden, thou mayest freely eat. But of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Well, in Genesis chapter 3, it tells us in verse 1 that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the serpent said unto the woman, Hath God said ye shall not eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden? And the woman said, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, God hath said ye shall not eat of it, neither shalt thou touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. The eyes of them both were opened. They knew that they were naked. Adam and Eve sinned. They disobeyed God. And immediately they fell out of fellowship with God. And when Adam and Eve sinned, the Bible teaches us in Romans 5 and verse 12, wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And so you and I this morning live in a crippled position because of the fall of sin. We are fallen creatures. And this crippling fall has left us a hopeless failure. Go back to chapter 9 for a minute. 
David is looking for somebody that's left of the house of Saul. They discover there is someone, and his name is Mephibosheth. And in verse number four, David inquires, well, where is he? Where is this, this Mephibosheth? Where is this man? And the king said, where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, behold, he's in the house of Maker. Now the name Maker means decay or ruin. Where is Mephibosheth, this lame boy? Oh, he's in the house of Maker. Decay, ruin. You see, the fall into sin has left us a hopeless failure. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. You and I today as sinners are a hopeless failure because of that sin. From the sole of our foot to the top of our head, there's no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They're not closed, they're not bound up, they're not mollified with ointment. The Apostle Paul said, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. There's none that calleth upon God. There's none that stirreth up himself to take hold of God. Why? Because we, as a fallen race, are a hopeless failure. We're in the house of Maker. But it goes on in verse 4, the house of Maker, the son of Amiel. The name Amiel means weak and weary. You and I this morning are sinners, and there's nothing humanly that we can do about that condition. Oh, we can try to go to church, and we can try to do some good things, but the truth is going to church and doing good things doesn't solve the sin problem. We're still sinners. We're still fallen before God. We are weak, we are weary in ourselves. We think, well, I'll be good enough to go to heaven. I, I, I'm a good citizen, I'm a good neighbor, I'm a good mom, I'm a good dad. Surely God will let me into heaven. But the Bible says it's not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy he saved us. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, we have fallen, and that fall has led us to be a hopeless failure. We have a helpless frailty, because in ourselves, there's nothing we can do to change our condition. And it leaves us with a haunting fruitlessness. Where is he? Oh, he's in the house of Maker. Decay, ruin, of Amiel, weak, weary, in Lodabar. Now the name Lodabar means barren, pastureless place. This place called Lodabar could not grow anything at all. It was barren. It was desolate. If if in the time of the Old Testament, if a piece of land could not at least grow some grass to provide some pasture, it was a worthless place in an agricultural society. 
And so this Lodabar was labeled such because it was a barren wasteland. We are left as sinners with a haunting fruitlessness, for without Christ, the Bible says, we can do nothing. We're not sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. A man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. We are fallen creatures. Now that's the bad news. And you didn't come to church this morning to get bad news. You could have stayed home and watched the news on Fox or CNN and gotten bad news. So let's move ahead because we see a crippling fall. But I want you to notice, secondly, a covenant foreordained. Now, in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, or rather, uh, yeah, 2 Samuel, David is looking for somebody that's left of the house of Saul. Now, why? Didn't Saul become David's enemy? After Saul lost the blessing of God, and David is anointed the next king, Saul begins to become very jealous of David. He, the Bible says he eyed David from that day forward after David came back with the head of Goliath. And people were saying, well, Saul only killed his thousands. David's killed 10,000. And people were singing his praises. And Saul eyed David. He was envious of the, of the praise that he was receiving. And the Bible tells us that Saul took a javelin and tried to kill Saul, uh, uh, David twice. So why is David now as the king concerned about somebody from the house of Saul? Does he think that maybe this descendant of Saul will try to usurp his authority? Maybe try to take the throne? Maybe try to gather some people together and overthrow David? Well, 2 Samuel 9 says he's looking for him because he wants to show him kindness. Well, why? Well, let's go back a little further. We've got to go a little bit back further. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20. Hold your place here in 2 Samuel 9. But go to 1 Samuel and chapter 20. Now, in this chapter, David and Jonathan are out in a field readying themselves to fight a battle and they're having a conversation. Remember, Jonathan is Saul's son. David and Jonathan have become close friends. Saul has lost the blessing of God and Jonathan recognizes that. See, normally, if a king was removed his son would become the king. If a king was killed in battle, the son of the king would take the throne, just as in a monarchy today. Over in England, you have a monarchy, and when the queen dies, the next in line takes the throne, right? We have a king of England now instead of a queen of England, but he's the next in line. And this would have been the case here in the Old Testament. So Saul, Jonathan knows Saul is going to die because God's hand of blessings come off of him. But Jonathan also knows that David's already been anointed king. So Jonathan's thinking about this. He's thinking, I'm not going to be the next king. David is. So that must mean something's going to happen to me. And it would be safe to assume, perhaps if you're Jonathan, that if the enemy can, king, can kill Saul, 
they probably would try to kill Jonathan as well. Because if you can kill in a war the king and his son, you leave the, you leave the land without leadership. So that would always be the goal, no doubt. So Jonathan is thinking this through. And he's thinking, Saul's going to die. My dad's going to die. I'm not going to be the next king. David is. So something's going to happen to me. And in 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan and, and, and David are having this conversation about this. Now notice with me, if you will, verse number 15. He says, and this is Jonathan speaking, he says, But also thou shalt not cut off the kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, every one from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord even required at the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan caused David to swear again because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So here in these verses, David and Jonathan are making a covenant between themselves. A covenant is a promise. We think of the Abrahamic covenant. We think of the Davidic covenant and so on. These are promises to God that could not be broken. So here are two men, David and Jonathan, making a covenant or a promise. And the promise is this. Jonathan is saying, David, I'm going down. You're going to be the next king. I'm not. So something's probably going to happen to me. And David, I just want to ask you to promise me that when I die, you'll take care of my family. You'll watch out for them. And they make this covenant between each other. Now notice this covenant is based on the word of his lips. Did you know that God has made a covenant with the human race long before you and I ever came to this planet? Before we even existed, God had already made a covenant with man. My favorite verse in all the Bible is 2 Samuel 14, verse 14. It says, we must needs die and are as water spilt on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. You've no doubt heard the phrase, no sense crying over spilled milk. Well, that comes from the Bible. 2 Samuel 14, 14. We must needs die and are as water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. When your kids spill milk on the table or water, whatever, no sense crying. Let's clean it up. You, you can't put it back into the cup. It's gone. And that's where our life is. When we die, there's no coming back. There's no return. No man hath power over the spirit to retain the spirit, neither hath he power in the day of death, for there's no discharge in that war. When we go to war with death, we're not coming back. There is no reincarnation. There is no second life. Life's not a video game. When you, when you lose, you start over. No. No, life, life comes, and then there's death. There's no coming back to life. So we're like water, spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any persons, 2 Samuel 14, 14 goes on to say. Young people die as well as older people die. Healthy people die just as sick people die. Death is no respecter of persons. Yet, hath God devised means whereby his banished be not expelled from him. So God sees our condition as human beings. We're sinners. That sin is going to lead us to death. 
But God says, wait a minute. I love them. I want them to live with me forever. So God devised a means so that when we die, we do not have to be expelled forever from God, but can be brought back into fellowship with Jesus Christ. What was that means? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The means that God provided for you and I as sinners to get saved was his son, Jesus Christ. And God made a promise that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that covenant is based on the word of his lips. Did you notice here that Jonathan said, David, swear by me. Now the word swear there is not to take God's name in vain. It's used just like we would use it perhaps in a courtroom where someone swears to tell the truth. They're sworn in to a testimony. Uh, our political leaders take an oath, don't they, to uphold the con Constitution. Sometimes they put their hand on a Bible and, and they're sworn in and they're, they're, they're making a promise to, to defend our country and so on. This is the way the word is used here. D Jonathan says, David, I, I know you love me. I know we're best friends. I know you'd probably take care of my family whether I asked you or not. But David, I want to hear it from you. I want you to say it. And aren't you glad that over and over again in this book called the Bible, God has told us of his covenant of salvation? That he has told us over and over again in this word of God, we call the Bible, that God will save whosoever shall call upon him. And aren't you glad that God's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent? Hath he said, shall he not do it? Spoken, shall he not make it good? In fact, it's impossible for God to lie, Hebrews 6, 18 tells us. So this is a covenant based on the word of his lips, but it's also based on the wealth of his love. Did you notice in verse 17, he loved him as he loved his own soul. If you hear nothing else this morning, if you're having trouble paying attention, if you're kind of got some sleepiness this morning, could I awaken you just for one phrase that I want you to remember today? God loves you. He does. Now, when I look in the mirror in the morning, I wonder why, don't you? I mean, I look at myself and think, God, what in the world were you thinking? But God loves us. And his love is unconditional. His love is eternal. I've loved thee with an everlasting love. In this was manifested the love of God in that he sent his only son into the world that we through him might live here in his love. Not that, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Oh, in my darkness, Jesus found me, touched my eyes and made me see broke sin's chains that long had bound me gave me life and liberty oh amazing truth to ponder he whom angel hosts attend lord of heaven god's son what wonder he became the sinner's friend oh glorious love of christ my lord divine that he would stoop to save a soul like mine
through all my days, and then in heaven above, my song will silence never. I'll worship Him forever and praise Him for His glorious love. Here was a covenant foreordained. But I want you to see, thirdly, a call to favor. Now go back to 2 Samuel 9. Let's go back there and follow the story. 2 Samuel 9 comprehensive search going on here. David is saying, is there any left of the house of Saul? And he's checking with everybody on his staff, all of his lords and princes. He's saying, do you know anybody that's left from the house of Saul? And nobody seems to know. And finally, someone suggests, well, listen, David, if you want to know, why don't you ask Ziba? He's left over from the reign of Saul. He would know if there's any but he's still alive. And so David calls for Ziba. Ziba comes in, art thou Ziba? Thy servant is he. And he asks him, is there any left of the house of Saul? He's on a comprehensive search. Did you know that the Lord is on a comprehensive search this morning? Now he's not searching our ID. He's not searching whether we're legal or illegal. He's not searching whether we have a driver's license for that vehicle out there or a registration form. No. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. There might be 99 in the fold, but he's still looking for that one lost sheep. He didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Why? Because the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, his covenant. But is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, we often make a promise and we forget all about it. And we have to say later, oh, I forgot. I'm so sorry. Right? But not God. God's not slack concerning the promise he's made. He's looking for every single person who needs to be saved. And David is looking for anybody that's left of the house of Saul. There's a comprehensive search here. And notice it leads to a contrite submission. In verse number 6, as Mephibosheth is brought before the king, he comes to David, he falls on his face, and he does reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he, said, he answered, Behold thy servant. In verse 8, he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant? that thou shouldst look upon such a dead dog as I am. You know, friend, pride will take you to hell. I almost went to hell because of my pride. My grandfather was saved, my great-grandfather, I should say, was saved on a boat coming to America from Germany. A Baptist preacher led him to Christ. As a result of that, my grandfather got saved at a very early age and lived his whole life serving God as a farmer. My dad got saved in a revival meeting in 1930 at the age of nine. And so my dad lived for Jesus Christ all of his life, a faithful deacon for 46 years in the church where I grew up. I was raised going to church. We never missed church. We went every time the doors were open. We even went when they weren't open because my parents were the janitors. We cleaned the church. We went on Saturday and cleaned the church. I was raised in church. My dad was a deacon. My mom a Sunday school teacher. My older sister was the church pianist. 
At age 15, I was the president of the youth group. But I wasn't saved. See, I had learned how to act like a Christian. I had memorized all the lines you were supposed to say as a Christian. But I had no relationship with Christ personally. And I remember going to camp as a 15-year-old youngster and sitting there that first night over on this side and the preacher, Dr. Eric Folsom from St. Petersburg, Florida, preached on hell. And I remember sitting there thinking, that's where I'm going. I'm a Baptist. I go to church. I'm the president of the youth group. But I'm going to hell. Now, I remember Dr. Folsom at the end of that service, he gave an invitation for us to come and accept Christ as our Savior. I knew that's what I needed to do, but I couldn't move. I just kind of hung on at my seat there, and I thought, I, I, I can't go up there. What will people think of me? I, I've acted like a Christian. I, everybody thinks I'm a Christian, and I can't go up there and admit that I'm not. It was my pride that kept me in my seat. I went out that night, and all that night, I I didn't struggle with a river that disappeared. I I was struggling with my salvation. I couldn't sleep. And I knew all I had to do was get out of bed, go over to my counselor, wake him up, and he would gladly show me how to be saved. He told us that before we went to bed. But I just couldn't do it. I was too proud. The next night, I sat over on this side. I thought, well, maybe the Holy Spirit doesn't speak as loudly on this side as he does this side. I chose a seat over here. Dr. Folsom preached again, and I don't remember what he preached. All I could think about was, I'm lost. I'm going to hell. And, 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 and I, I listened, but, but when the invitation came, I, just, I couldn't go up there. My pride, my stubborn German pride. After the service, they showed a film. We called them films in those days. We'd call them videos or movies now. And we watched this film about uh, music. I don't remember much about it. And all through that movie, uh, sitting in that dark room, I kept thinking, I'm going to hell. I'm going to hell. By the end of that film, I, I thought, I don't want to go to hell, and I don't care about my pride anymore. I just want to get saved. And I thought, when they end this thing, I'll go up there and, and ask Christ to save me. And, and, and the film ended, and my pastor, who was kind of running the week of camp, he got up and he said, all right, we've already had an invitation earlier tonight, so just get back to your cabin, get some sleep, we'll see you in the morning. And I thought, what? I, I want to get saved, and now they won't let me. <laughs> and everybody started going out the back door, and I remember watching those kids going out the back door, and I thought, if I go out that door, I may never get saved. There was a man standing behind me. I had no idea who he was. He turned out to be a pastor. His name was Don Foffey. A long time now in heaven. But I turned to him, and I didn't know who he was. He was just an adult, and I said, Sir, could you help me? And I'm sure he saw conviction on the back of my head during the movie. I mean, I was convicted. And he said, I'd be glad to help you. We went down an aisle to a little side room. That night, August the 1st, 1967, 1030 at night, I humbled myself. I said, God, I'm just a dead dog. I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve to to, to have my sins forgiven, but your word says you'll save me, and I claim that promise. You see, pride will take you to hell. Pride will keep you from coming to Christ. You'll build yourself up in your good works, and you'll build yourself up in being religious. Your pride 
will go before your destruction. Notice a contrite submission. And, and Mephibosheth comes in this humility before David. And as he does, there's a complete supply. You see, when you get saved, Christ becomes your all and in all. And David tells Mephibosheth here in these verses 7 and 9 and 11 and 13, he's saying, everything's going to be taken care of for you, Mephibosheth. I'm going to have Ziba's servants till the ground that belonged to Saul. They're going to they're sow the crops and they're going to harvest the crops and they're going to bring them on in and they're all going to be to your credit. You're going to have everything that belonged to Saul. It's all yours now. And you're going to sit here at my table and eat of my food. You see, there's a complete supply when you come to Christ. He, he provides all that you need and all those things that you long for and all of those things that you crave after in life, it all disappears because he becomes our all and in all, we're complete in him. And I want you to see finally this morning, there's a change forever. Mephibosheth's life is never going to be the same. And when you get saved, your life is never the same. Because if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And we see a promised provision here. As I mentioned a minute ago in these verses, starting in verse 7, David said, Fear not, I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. There was going to be the provision delivered to, 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 to Mephibosheth. There was a promised provision here. And I'm so glad that Jesus said before he left this earth, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. A promised provision for eternity. But notice also, Mephibosheth has a permanent position. Look at verse number 10. Therefore, thou therefore and thy sons, thy servants, shall tell the land of him, and thou shalt bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, my master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. Always. It is a permanent position. In verse 13, he says, Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually. This was something that was permanent. Uh, Mephibosheth wasn't going to just be a guest at the table for a week or a couple of weeks or a year. No, he now had a place permanently at David's table. Do you know that when you trust Christ as Savior, it's a permanent decision? I give to them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. The Father that gave them me is greater than all, and no man's able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. It's a permanent position. But then notice, finally, a providential perspective. Now look at several places, and I'll show you what to look at. Look at verse 7 again. And notice the last phrase in verse 7. And thou shalt eat bread at my table. Look at it in verse 10, in the middle. It says, but Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. Look again at verse number 11. 
And right at the end again, said the king, he shall eat at my table. Verse 13, Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table. Four times, at my table, at my table, at my table, at the king's table. Why is there this emphasis at my table? Was Mephibosheth still lame? Yeah. The last phrase in chapter 13, last phrase of the chapter, Mephibosheth was lame on both his feet. Still lame. Did anybody notice it? No. Because Mephibosheth is always sitting at the table. When you sit at a table, maybe you will at lunch today, you'll sit down, you'll slide up to a table, maybe with your family or some friends, and you'll enjoy a meal together. As you're sitting at a table, what part of your physical anatomy is not seen? Well, your lower extremities, right? They're under the table. You see, the table provides a covering for your feet. Mephibosheth could look down at that table and he could see his feet. They were still twisted and mangled. And you and I can look at ourselves and we can still see our old sinful flesh, can't we? We still see our frailties as sinners. But when God looks at you after you get saved, he doesn't see your sin because he's provided an atonement, a covering. In the Old Testament, when someone sinned, they took a lamb or an animal of some kind, they killed it, shed the blood, and the blood became an atonement for their sin, a covering for their sin. Jesus Christ went to the cross, his blood was shed, and he became the final sacrifice for sin, the final atonement for sin. And today, when you trust Christ as your Savior, the blood of Jesus Christ covers your sin. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us in our sinful condition. He sees through the righteousness of Christ. Christ has provided the covering for our sin. What a beautiful picture of the atonement. The blood of Christ covers our sin. To God, it's removed as far as the east is from the west. It's behind his back, never to be remembered again because the blood has provided a covering. Are you at the table of grace? Have you come to that table? Have you asked Jesus to be your savior? If not, come and dine. Millions have come, but there's still room for one. Come to the table today. Trust Christ as your savior. And Christian, if you're at the table, start enjoying it. When our kids were growing up, and even since, every once in a while, we get the whole family together, you know, and everybody comes, and the kids, and the grandkids, and all that, and my wife will, you know, get out the table, and all the leaves, we got to put all the leaves of the table in, because we're going to have a big crowd, and boy, she sets all those places around there, and maybe it's Thanksgiving, and she cooks a wonderful meal, and my daughter and daughter-in-law's help, and we get it all ready, and boy, you can just smell that food, and you're just anticipating this wonderful meal. And my wife has this phrase, when it's ready, she'll say, food's on. 
Uzan. In other words, it's on the table, come and, come and eat, you know. And we come. I mean, we've been anticipating. We're ready. My father-in-law lived with us for seven and a half years. He lived to be 90, 95, and he was an eater. He, he loved to eat, even in his older age. And boy, she'd say, food's on, and my father-in-law would come. He's doing the old folk shuffle, but he, he's coming to that table. Boy, he was ready to eat. And sometimes we'd get seated around that table, and I'd be ready to have some prayer, you know, to bless the food. And I'd look around, and there'd be a place empty. And I, okay, who's missing here? And maybe it was my youngest son, Eric. Eric was the youngest, 15 years behind the oldest, and sometimes he'd go to his room or whatever, and I'd say, where's Eric? And I'd say, Eric, food's on! <laughs> and a voice would come from the deep, dark confines of the place we called his room. And he would say, I'm not hungry. And I think, not hungry? What in the world? Well, come to the table anyway. And so here'd come Eric, you know, trudging into the dining room. Eric's 6'4", he's got size 4 He'd slide those under the table, kind of slouch back. I'd say, Eric, what's wrong? Nothing. You want to talk about something? No. You know, whenever one of my kids was like that, didn't want to come to the table, I discovered there were there were two reasons that were possibilities. One, he wasn't right with the guy at the head of the table, me. In other words, he didn't want to be with me. Something between us that wasn't right. Or he'd been snacking on junk food. <laughs> and you know what? Those of us that are saved, we have a seat at the table, but some of us sit there like, I really don't want to be here. You know why? Because something's not right with you and the guy at the head of the table, God. Or you've been snacking on the things of this world, and as a result, you've lost your appetite for spiritual things. Oh, listen, we're at the king's table. He provides everything we need. As a Christian, let's enjoy the table the fellowship with God, the fellowship with one another, knowing that we have a place there forever. And if you're not at the table, please come today and trust Christ as your Savior.